My name is Adam Marsh. I am joined by my Cinelit resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you doing, Daryl? I'm great, Adam. Thanks. Are you ready to, uh, to, to break free of these chains of lockdown and embrace the world again? I just want to get back to the movies. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? We're on lockdown and what we've got to do is sit and watch movies all day. Um, and as soon as we're out of lockdown... I want to go out and watch movies all day, so... Sure, it'd be nice to see them back on the big screen, though, so... So hopefully that'll be sooner rather than later. Um, but today we are we're hugging back up again to discuss uh, a relatively unknown name in cinema. I'm not sure everyone knows exactly who he is, even though he's directed over 40 films. Um, we're going to be talking about Brian Trenchard-Smith. Hey. <laughs> there you go so um yeah i'm, I'm not sure I, I can't get a handle on on how well known he is how what, what's your thoughts on it Darryl? i think people probably know some of his films better than they know him uh, um even then he's a bit of a niche a bit of a cult um but people are interested in australian cinema and if you've seen the that documentary not quite hollywood He's all over that, and um, you know he's a big part of that sort of seventies movement in Australian sort of new cinema. So he's quite an important figure. Yeah, someone who who maybe his films are better known than he is. Okay, cool. And I say even then, I'm not sure how how well known his films are. Yeah, not 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 at high level. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we 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 we're going to structure this by picking out five films that we think uh, maybe sum up his career in a, in a concise way. Because I mean, the man's directed over forty movies, loads of TV shows. He's a very prolific director over his um, forty plus years uh, directing films. So um, we've chosen five movies uh, which we're going to discuss, and hopefully we'll bring out some themes of his career. Um, as we go along. Okay, so first up, we're, so we're going to talk about um, his debut feature, uh, The Man from Hong Kong, uh, made in 1975, uh, right in the height uh, uh, of the, uh, the burgeoning of the exploitation boom in the 1970s, where censorship restrictions in Australia have been lifted in the late 60s, early 70s, leading to a rise in independent filmmaking, where slightly more risque types of films, uh, genre types of films are being made way more than, than had been previously made. Yeah, what are your thoughts on the uh, initial boom of exploitation there, Daryl? Um, well, Brian was part of that, as you say, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, we, we could really do a whole podcast on, on the Oz thing, and as I say, not quite Hollywood, sort of covers it really nicely, but people will know stuff like Mad Max and the Peter Weir films and so on, and then Brian comes along, he's been around in the film business for, for some years by then, but never had a chance to make a feature film, and then suddenly in, in the mid-70s, after everybody else has done one, he's, he's, he's sort of quite late to the party really, but um, uh, he comes in with the man from Hong Kong and blows everyone away. It's, it's a stone cold 10 out of 10 classic for me. Oh wow. Love it, love it. Okay, because uh, well, he, he, he kind of got his star, um, bizarrely, shooting documentaries about 
other exploitation uh, films. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Before even before that, um, if you go back to the late sixties and around nineteen seventy, he was he was cutting trailers for movies. He did a whole load of uh, Hammer Horror trailers around nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy, and he did he did the trailer for the Italian Job and the trailer for the Virgin Soldiers and the trailer for Once Upon a Time in the West. And um, about 100 different movie trailers. And then, as you say, got into this business of making what, what we now think of as being sort of DVD or Blu-ray extras. And I guess he was making these little films to be shown on the Australian TV to sort of promote movies. But they were very similar to what you'd now get on a Blu-ray. Yeah, it's quite interesting you say that about the trailers thing, because it does that sort of like being at the... Um the sales pitch end of the industry to start off with obviously had a, uh, a major influence on the types of movies that he made and how he, how he went about constructing his productions. Exactly. You, that really, really, that's one thing about Brian, that really, really does feed into his, his own movies. And you can tell that when, when you know that he was a trailer cutter and you watch one of his films you get both of those things. You get you get the speed and, and the great editing and so on, but you get the ballyhoo as well. You get the promotion. You get the subject matter that's going to sell itself, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think that trailer thing was very important in his career. Okay, so let's move on to this 10 out of 10 stone-cold classic, The Man from Hong Kong. I'm not quite sure I agree with that but okay you've you've got you've got another favorite uh, brian film i'm sure but this this is my favorite and i'm going to pitch brian here i'm going to be outrageous and say he's the awesome wells of exploitation okay um but i've only i've only got two i've only got two reasons for saying that um it, it doesn't hold water at all his debut feature film is his masterpiece even though he, he made great films later on, he never, for me, never quite sort of hit the, the mark of the man from Hong Kong again. And then the second thing is, wouldn't Orson Welles have killed to have made a film called The Man from Hong Kong? What a Wellsian <laughs> title that is. The, fil the film's nothing like it, but, but uh, you know, what would Welles have done with a title like that? But he never did. Brian did. And uh, what, what a film. One of the titles for it is The Dragon Flies as well, isn't it? Yeah, which is great. Again, when you see the movie, that sums up in three words what you're going to see on screen, really, in all kinds of ways. Yeah, so this, this movie stars Jimmy Wang Yu, who was a major star in Hong Kong cinema in the late 60s, early 70s. He was the One-Armed Swordsman, which was his first big film, which spawned, uh, uh, well, two official sequels and a whole number of unofficial sequels <laughs> from that. And he also had a hit called The Chinese Boxer. So it was only natural that when he'd had a falling out with the Hong Kong studio that produced One-Armed Swordsman, he went off and did a movie called One-Armed Boxer, uh, combining two of his favourite hits. So, so he, but he was like, I mean, he was famous, uh, I said, late 60s, early 70s, at the Shaw Brothers studio making those Hong Kong samurai movies he starred slight to wane a little bit in by, by 1975 i guess in the wake of bruce lee coming along and a much more um accomplished martial artists around that period uh, had come along and st slightly stolen his uh, spotlight a little bit so yeah so we get to 1975 brian trenchard smith had done a deal with a tv company to make a film called kung fu killers uh, with stuntman grant page who will will come along on to next <laughs> we will 
so they were they were making a documentary on kung fu movies in hong kong and there he sort of got the connections with golden harvest raymond chow that's where the the funding and the links and the connections and george lazenby was under contract on a three-picture deal with golden harvest at that time so they managed to get george lazenby in the man from hong kong james bond himself the one and only james bond well, yeah, he was the, the, the first, first new Bond, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. He's the new Coke of, of James Bonds. Yeah, but he, he wasn't that long ago from doing that role. I mean, it was only like 1969. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on a Majesty's Secret Service. So it was only five, six years after shooting Bond, yeah. being Bond. I suppose the point to make there is the, the fallout from that was still very sort of in, in the air, you know, and he, he was still... A bit, a bit of an industry joke, really, you know, and you know, wasn't wasn't getting masses of work. So no, he hadn't done much. He'd done he'd done um, the Aldo Lado movie, Who Saw Her Die. Who Saw Her Die, which is great, brilliant, brilliant, Jalo, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd done that in 1972, but again, just been kicking around, not really doing much, and didn't seem to want to do much as well. Yeah, yeah. Reading a little bit about him, um, he seems to be quite an arrogant, <laughs> I don't care kind of attitude, giving up Bond yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. What, what's, notable about, what's notable about him in The Man From Hong Kong is he plays the, the, the chief villain, the, the Mr. Big character in the film, and it's like the greatest Bond villain you never saw. You know, he's, 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 it's almost like he shouldn't have been cast as James Bond. He should have played the, the, the bad guy, you know, because he's fantastic in this as, as that kind of character. Yeah, he's 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 full of um, he's full of um, arrogant menace, and and just sits in this huge pad drinking whiskey and stuff and waiting for things to happen, and uh, sort of ordering his henchmen around. And uh, then getting involved in the big confrontation at the end. It's, it's fabulous. And it's, uh, you know, Bond fans would love it. Even if you didn't like him as, as, as JB, you know, any James Bond fan watching this would really groove on, on seeing, um, uh, seeing Mr. Lazenby here playing, uh, playing the other side of the coin. Okay, so, so, so the basic plot of The Man from Hong Kong is Jimmy Wang Yu plays a Hong Kong cop, The Man from Hong Kong who's coming to Sydney to extradite a cocaine dealer, a cocaine smuggler, played by the uh, infamous Sammo Hung. With, with a great, great hairstyle. He looks fantastic, doesn't he, in, in yeah, this movie? Yeah. yeah, he obviously went on to be a major star in Hong Kong cinema. But here, early, early doors for Sammo Hung in this movie. He gets assassinated fairly early in the movie, and Jimmy Wang Yu stays around to try and track down the man responsible, George Lazenby's um, Aussie crime boss, Jack Wilson. So that's a basic plot. So why is it a 10 out of 10 movie, Daryl? Come on. Well, for me, it's, it's just an astounding parade of stunt work with Grant Page and all the other guys involved. Car chasers, martial arts set pieces, kung fu fighting, hang gliding, thrilling hang gliding sequences. And just non-stop action. It's all set to this bouncy, light pop soundtrack. The theme tune, oh. people that were around in the 70s will know, it was a big hit in Britain in the 70s, Sky High by Jigsaw. What a tune. Oh, man, that song has been playing in my head for, like, days. Days since I watched that movie again. And for, for people that are into their exploitation, it's got everybody in it. You'll see people like Hugh Keysburn and, and Frank Thring in it, who people will know from the Mad Max franchise and so much other Aussie cinema. Grant Page is in, as we've mentioned three times already. 
uh, sort of heading the stunt team and uh, all the stunt guys doing absolutely incredible work. So yeah, it just it just moves along at an incredible pace. It's got action scene after action scene, absolutely non-stop. And um, I don't think the Australian film industry had ever seen anything quite like it. And it really, really holds up today. You know, I, I watched it again uh, yesterday. Oh, it's as, as good as ever, you know. <laughs> I mean, what struck me about it was it, it's, de- it's definitely got set pieces where you think, okay, that's the gritty British crime set piece. Yeah, yeah. That's the action set piece. I mean, like, nowadays you can't walk up Ayers Rock. But in 1975, you could have a major action set piece on there. You, you could do kung fu on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a great. I mean, that that again, again, in, in the way of summing up Trenchard Smith's attitude towards cinema, it appears to be anyway, putting the money on the screen as much as possible really stands out in this movie. It's like, what do we have in Australia? We've got Airs Rock, right? We'll have a se- action set piece in Airs Rock. We've got Sydney Opera House, right? We'll we'll we'll, bing, we'll bang that in there multiple times, and they, they really try and maximise the things that they've got uh, that are going to be um, great production values on screen. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing about Brian's cinema as a whole. I think if, certainly if you watch his early Australian films, he loves Sydney in the way that Martin Scorsese loves New York. Never ever misses a chance to show off Sydney Opera House. The great landmarks around the city, both natural and, and man-made, great rock formations, the, the lovely sort of coastal beauty, you know, there's all the scenes with yachts and hang gliders and helicopters flying out over the ocean and so on. And yeah, he, you're right, he really, really does use what he's got around him. This is great advice for young, um, low-budget filmmakers, is use what you've got around you. Brian just happened to have Sydney Opera House around him. Well, this, this, was a, I mean, this was a really well-shot movie as well. I mean, the cinematographer, Russell Boyd, went on to win an Oscar for Master and Commander yeah, 25, yeah. 30 years later. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a brilliantly shot movie. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and, and uh, Brian obviously worked very, very well alongside his DEPs because throughout his cinema, the, the, his use of CinemaScope is, is amazing, you know, and again, really adds production value. Sim- just, by, just by using the widescreen, his, his, his skill in using that widescreen image lends the film's another you know million dollars worth of worth of production for nothing you know and the, yeah. the colors that the colors that he uses often often shot scenes in in very bright light with very vivid colors some of that natural you know you're in australia you're in sydney the sky is going to be yellow with sunshine the suit the sea is going to be bright blue you're going to have lovely sort of greenery in the parks and so on so Sydney and, and his Aussie locations almost do the job for him. But then he can add in sort of reds and purples and things um, in the costumes, in the props and, and in the vehicles and um, seem to really work very, very well with his cameramen. And it all added to sort of enhance the, uh, the, the overall sort of feel of the films and again, make them look more expensive than they were. I think the film loses its way a little bit as it goes along. I think there's two things that really hold it back from, for being a, a 10 out of 10 for me is I don't think Jimmy Wang Yu is that charismatic as the lead. He's playing this sort of like James Bondy, seducer of women, uh, action star, and he's not quite that charismatic enough to pull it off, I don't think. 
I've, I've got a sort of rejoinder to that. I think you're right. You're right. But to, if you think Jackie Chan went over to Australia about 20 years later and he did very much the same sort of thing that, that Jimmy does in this film. And and I think he's he's as good as Jackie Chan. You know, he's 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 he's, he's a fish out of water, really. And he's going to struggle. And, but what happens is the rest of the cast sort of pull together to, to build up his character. They all talk about him and act around him as though he's this great charismatic figure and it's it sort of works for me you know um and and the sort of alien qualities of him being in this strange land you know does lend itself to the way he sort of plays the part whether by accident or design i i think it sort of works in his favor he's, he he and the rest of the cast sort of turn around any deficiencies i'm, I'm just i'm just trying to keep up that 10 out of 10 uh, rating here but uh, <laughs> My other little quibble with it was like, I think the love interest gets brought in a bit too late in the plot. Yeah, but then the, the, what happens again there in the structure of the plot is, is um, he meets up with uh, another woman very as soon as he gets off the plane to, to Australia, you know. He's, he's, he's having all these sort of affairs. Yeah, but his, his, his big, the big love of his life does sort of come in late on. But I think, again, that's excusable because of, of what's happened earlier in the film. And you've seen him sort of interacting with other characters. Yeah. Well, I suppose they do establish their, their love affair via a wonderful um, montage sequence that gets everything we need to know about. We oh, got, got, well, this, this is the, the, one, the one lull in, in the action. You, you're almost expecting them to beat each other up, you know, because it's the only <laughs> scene in the film where no one's fighting. It, but it was kind of like, we don't need to do dialogue scenes where we enhance the depth of the characters. Whack it all in a montage. Oh, yeah, yeah. And by the end of that, they're in love. They've always been in love and they're in love forever. Yeah, yeah. Ten out of ten. So they're, they're, my two, they're two of my criticisms of the movie. But to help you bring it back up to a ten out of ten, two great sequences in that I, I, I found absolutely fantastic. The fight scene in the lift shaft. Brilliant, brilliant. Was, br- was really brilliant and, and it felt unique it felt interesting it felt like i'm not i genuinely not seen this before and it was it was really well done yeah you, you do sort of find yourself thinking as, as it's unfolding you know and he's in the lift and you think obviously someone's going to get in there with him there's going to be three guys in there with him this will be interesting they'll have a fight no it something different happens and it changes the whole dynamic of the scene and then as you say we get to a point where we're getting something that I, I don't think had been done before. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great, great sequence. Yeah, and the, the, the other sequence was the, 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 the long chase sequence when he's chasing down the assassin. Yeah, yeah. Um, which has got a, like a little bit of sort of like parkour kind of style mm-hmm. action sequence yeah, where yeah. they're running on foot, then they're on bikes, then they're running on... It's just a crazy, crazy sequence well you you know this is the point where you know you, you've got to look out for look very very closely at what you're watching and you'll you'll probably spot grant page in a wig se- several times you know because one of his great fortes was sort of climbing up the outside of buildings and so on so uh, any any time you see any action like that and it's supposed to be jimmy or it's meant to be one of the henchmen or Lazenby or someone involved look very closely and you'll probably see it's one of the stuntmen in a wig but that's all part of the film's charm you know and the and the stunts well you shouldn't be looking that closely on your first viewing because you should just be sitting there with your mouth open in awe at the the chases and the stunts and the fights they're incredible and i think the variety of the action sequences in this movie really really help elevate you have that sort of like 
a gritty British crime chase through the streets of Sydney, fighting in a, in a Chinese restaurant action sequence. You've got that close-up fight in the lift shaft. Yeah. You have the martial arts on top of Ayers Rock. Brilliant. Yeah. And then you've got like a really extended uh, stunt driving car chase sequence towards the end of the movie as well do you know do you know what's really great about the action scenes and the fight scenes jimmy gets hurt in them his character gets hurt he he gets chopped to pieces like everyone else you know he's stumbling out of those fights covered in scars and gashes and blood pouring everywhere it's not like watching a tom cruise movie or something this this guy's getting hurt the character's getting hurt, you know, and there's 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 a great scene in the film where he he has this fight with sort of swords and machetes, where he's taking on about five other guys, you know, and he he beats them all and leaves them all in a bloody pulp on the floor of this gym, and then he sort of stumbles out, and you think, oh, he's going off to lick his wounds, and two other guys turn up. <laughs> it's it's great, and and you just don't know where this film's going to go with scenes like that. But yeah, I, I'm really impressed with the fact that they, they have their hero looking sort of weak and in pain at times, you know. He's not this invincible sort of Superman. He can he can get hurt and he is vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, got, it's definitely got that sort of like Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Yeah. He yeah. wears his scars as he goes along the movie, doesn't sure, he? Sure, sure. Let's move, let's move on to our next film. Brian did a, a, another movie called Death Cheaters. But with the movie we're going to talk about next is Stunt Rock. An odd movie, if I'm honest. Yeah, it is odd. Um, and feels very much of its time. Brian says it's the worst film he ever made. I don't agree, but, <laughs> okay. but he, he doesn't like it himself. But I think it's a film that if you know what you're watching, and if you, you probably need to do a bit of research, you maybe need to listen to this podcast and watch a couple of Brian's other movies before you, you approach Stunt Rock. But once you've got that little bit of background knowledge, it's a lot of fun. Tarantino is a, a huge fan of Brian Trenchard-Smith. Yeah. And I think that Stunt Rock is, is sort of equates in Tarantino's career to Death Proof in that Tarantino would work with Zoe Bell as, as a stunt person on a number of films. And he obviously loved Zoe so much that he thought, we need to give this lady a vehicle. If not her own movie, then a, a film that has got big chunks of her in it, being able to do her stuff, you know. And I, if, if that was his thinking on Death Proof, this is the film where he got that idea, because it's Brian's love letter to Grant Page. It does. It does feel like a very seventies movie in the sense that you know you had like some like Evil Knievel, yeah, being yeah, famous yeah. for doing Daredevil stunts, and then he got his own movie. Yeah, and this yeah. kind of feels a little bit like that. Grant Page had a little bit of a name for himself as a pioneering stuntman. But it's so weird. It's it, it's sort of part documentary. It's part fiction, and then you've got these the half of the movie is nothing to do with Grant. It's about this sort of proto-spinal tap outfit called, with the great name, Sorcery. What a, what a name yeah. for, a, for a metal band, you know. And, and they live up to that because they come out on stage and they, so they're in the film because they sort of know Grant and one of them is supposed to be related to him or something. And they're hanging around with the, ac the actress from, from the movie that he's working on and, and the girl reporter who's sort of covering the, the shoot. And they all go off and see this band rehearsing or doing gigs every, every so often. So about half the movie is made up of sorcery live footage. And it's great because they're called sorcery. And the reason is when they turn up on stage, they've got 
this guy called the Prince of Darkness with them, and they've got this sort of Merlin-type wizard, and they're throwing fire at each other, fireballs, and firing flames out of their fingertips at each other while the band play around them. So, uh, and, and this, this takes up about 50% of this movie that's supposed to be about this stuntman. It's, it's just bizarre. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote down like plot for this movie, and I've literally put not much of one. <laughs> it's basically Grant Grant Page moving to America to be the lead stunt guy on this TV show called Danger Girl, headlined by Monique Van Der Van, yeah. who um, a Dutch actress who ended up I know her from the uh, Dick Mass movie Amsterdam. Mm, yes, she was the lead. That character in that so she's she's headlining playing a version of herself in this but grant's grant's there to be the stunt guy for this for this show he starts romancing this journalist lois who's played by uh, margaret gerard who ends up being dr margaret trenchard smith and there's a nice link to brian there it's his wife <laughs> so you ha- and, and that's literally it this is yes, slight yeah. romance and that's it there's not really much to hang your hat on it just links between high-profile stunts in split screens of these daredevil stunts, man-on-wire style. As, as I said, Brian's Brian's great at using CinemaScope. You, you do get the impression with this one that he's, he's, he's recently seen a couple of Brian De Palma films. So it, it assembles this movie where, as you're watching it, it's fine. It moves relatively swiftly from from music piece to stunt piece to little bit of drama and you've got this sleazy agent guy and you've got these different characters and you get to the end of the movie and you think oh that's it <laughs> there's not really anything that makes the movie a movie in some way yeah yeah it's again it's sort of like a 90 minute blu-ray extra you know but it's the it's the sort of thing that used to play on the bottom half of double bills back in the old days of double bills around the time it came out this would have been great you know if you'd gone to see that playing before Smokey and the Bandit or something. You know, it's look brilliant. And Hal Needham, who, who was involved with Burt Reynolds and all the Smokey films and everything, Hal Needham's cinema at that time was all about trying to promote the idea of, of stunts as being a sort of integral part of, of, of his movies. And then, of course, what he had, I think, in the same year as this, was um, Richard Rush doing The Stuntman, a very a sort of art movie style, very critically acclaimed um very sort of philosophical symbolic sort of piece about the stunt industry and so you've got all this stuff with Richard Rush's film and with Hal Needham's career going on and um maybe Brian yeah it was it was definitely the idea of the stuntman was in the ether wasn't it around that period because you had uh, you say you had the (coughs) the stunt movies of I'll need him smoking the bandit. So it was almost trying to set these guys up as like mythical godlike figures of the movies, you know, and uh, it was this weird little little sort of blip in, in film history where everybody for five minutes wanted to celebrate the stuntman. I think the, the other thing that makes them, what, what this feels like to me, it feels like a clip show from a long-running TV <laughs> yeah, series. Yeah, it is. Yeah, very much. <laughs> you know, like, you know, we got to 500 episodes... Here's a clip from Mad Dog Morgan. Here's a clip yeah. from Mad Max. That's it. And you are actually getting these clips. You know, they, they use clips from other films yeah. in it. So, uh... yeah, I mean, I think Grant, it's all about Grant Page. I and mean, Grant Page was a key figure 
in that Australian exploitation movie was the stunt coordinators on like Mad Dog Morgan, man from Hong Kong, obviously. Patrick, yeah. the um, coma patient, telekinesis coma patient movie, great movie. He was Mad, Mad Max, the original Mad yeah. Max. He was on Road Games. He played the actual uh, bad guy in Road Games. So he was front and centre in, in that whole movement. One, one of those guys who was a really good stuntman, but was a great actor as well. He, he could actually handle acting roles, which is always useful to a director. We're going to jump a few years now. Obviously, Brian carried on shooting a few more movies uh, in between all this, but we're going to move to his uh, his movie called Turkey Shoot. Wow. Known in America as Escape 2000 and known in this country, in the UK, as the wonderfully exploitative title Blood Camp Thatcher. And that, that one came from Mike Lee at uh, Vipco Films, one of our favourite labels. Because there is, a, there is a male character called Thatcher in the movies. Who, uh... Yeah, he's the main villain in the movies, is Charles Thatcher. Not Margaret Thatcher. No, no, but, but Mike Lee led you to believe it was on the box. So, uh, you know, you'd, you'd rent the film expecting you were going to get some kind of weird Maggie impersonation and <laughs> you, you, you get this big uh, macho villain instead. But, uh, but yeah, Turkey Shoot, what a film. Nine out of ten, this one. This is another version, basically, of The Most Dangerous Game. Yes, it is. It, it is. seems to be one every... 10, 15 years, somebody else makes a new version of the most dangerous game. More recent examples being things like Battle Royale, The Hunger yeah, Games. The, well, the, the Hunt that came out uh, just a few months ago, just before lockdown. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, so it's, st- it's still very current, you know. I think it'll always will be. I think it's one of those one of those ideas. Yeah, but this this came out this came out eighty uh, two, and it was probably I you know I'd I'd sort of pitched the golden era of exploitation cinema, probably from the mid fifties through to about nineteen eighty two. Films were, films were still being made after nineteen eighty two with exploitative subject matter, horror films, uh, sort of science fiction, you know. All, all the sort of comic book stuff that we love. Some, something seemed to change at the end of 1982. And um, you stop, what you stopped getting was that type of movie where you, you were watching them and you simply did not know what was coming next. And you didn't know which genres were going to be sort of mashed together. And Brian does that here. This is the great last gasp, I think, of that kind of movie. Because it is the most dangerous game, but it's mixed with a sort of women in prison style. It's not exactly a women in prison movie. It's a sort of mixed prison. But it's got that women in prison genre, subgenre sort of feel to it. The exploitation prison. It's not a real prison. It's a movie prison, you know, uh, where anything can happen, where the guards are sadistic, where the, the, the governors are even more sadistic. And you've also got this dystopian science fiction sort of element to it. So it's, a, it's this sort of genre mashup with the human hunting, most dangerous game plot sort of shunted into it. And boy, does it all work brilliantly. Yeah, so, so, so the basic plot, the basic plot is it's set in this totalitarian future where people who don't agree with the usual, the, the governmental view are called deviants and are held in rehabilitation camps. Um, a prisoner played by Steve Railsback from The Stuntman and a wrongly accused prisoner, played by Olivia Hussey from Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, so big, big names, big names. Uh, they, they team up to survive this decadent oppressor's game of death that's put on, where they are, they, they're, they're involved in a 12-hour hunt, and they have to survive 12 hours out in the open. 
So we've got Steve Rails back, fresh off. I mean, literally, the, the stuntman was 1980. So he'd have been fresh off an Oscar-nominated movie. Yeah, and we're sort of critically red-hot at the time, you know, and uh, um, because of that film. Um, and then, then he ends up working with the guy who made Stunt Rock, so... It does seem an odd choice. I mean, it, it's not... For me, it's not odd, because I, th- I don't think he's much of an actor, Steve mm. Rails back. Uh, and even in the stuntman, I don't think he's very good. Mm. And maybe that's the industry thought, yeah, he's not going to be the guy to kick off. Could be, could be. Even by 1981-82, he was being offered movies <laughs> like Turkey Shoot. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, Brian's the kind of guy that will come in and hoover people like that up and say, OK, you know, Hollywood doesn't want you, but your last, your last film got Oscar nominated and, you know, every critic in the world loved it. So I, I if nobody else wants to work with you, I will, you know. And uh, Yeah, and there was a big boom of in Australian cinema around that period. There was a lot of fairly big names going down to Australia. Yeah, yeah. And shooting movies, you know, yeah. you've got things, people like David Hemmings was, yeah. was involved in this movie. He wasn't he? Some like him sort of made careers there and went out and lived there for a few years, you know. And uh, there's 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 one guy that I'm going to talk about a little later on, actually. But uh, yeah, it, it was a thing that yeah, go to Australia. Their movie industry is is sort of uh, really flowering, you know. Let's make movies there, you know. I think it was a, a, a case of other other local industries, certainly the UK film industry, was sort of starting to dry up a little bit. And it was like, we've still got this drive, we want to make movies, we can't do them at home, you know, in Britain or in certain parts of America or in certain parts of Europe. Let's go over to where we can make them, and Australia was the place. The, the style of the, the productions there were built around Australian casts with American or UK leads yeah. headlining the movie, I guess, to help international sales. Yeah, yeah. Olivia Hussey as well. I mean, she, she'd done some fairly big stuff. Yeah, but again, she was a sort of ne- a nearly woman, sort of, you know, she was a sort of might have yeah. been. She, she peaked very early in her career, you know, and uh, and and then, then sort of rather drifted through the 70s. And, um, and I, I don't think too many people even know who she is now, you know, but... Uh, very interesting career, you know, quite quite a long career for for an actress. I mean, she was working. She she was in one of the one of the Psycho sequels, wasn't she? So she went right up to the nineties, you know, and uh, didn't maybe have the career that she might have dreamed of. But I think looking back on on what she did, some some very interesting films across quite a long period. And Tur- Turkey Shoot is is a, a really stands out on her filmography as like, what's that doing there? But uh, but she's she's great in it. She she throws herself into it, and uh, so so this is a nine out of ten for you. I think so. Yeah, it's 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 just a notch down from Man from Hong Kong, but it is great, and it is it is really the sort of last film of its kind for me as well. You know, in in that people were still making films like that later, and then people like Troma came along soon after, and and you had things like. Empire Pictures and, and Charles Band and stuff, but it wasn't quite the same. Turkey Shoot was was the last of, of, of these films where it was almost made specifically to, to, to play in grindhouses and on 42nd Street. And, um, and it, it does have that quality of what on earth is going to happen next. I mean, the, it's, it's most famous for having this weird, what, what is he, a sort of werewolf, ape-man sort of stunted sort of character who comes in covered in hair and and yeah i was gonna ask you about that daryl appears in the middle of scenes for no reason whatsoever you know and uh, you don't sort of really know 
why why this sort of monster suddenly in the film you know it's that all these sort of like decadent hunters are bringing out their, their latest weapons and this decadent woman's got this arrow firing gun thing and yeah, you know, the yeah. specific rifle barrel and then this guy goes yeah i've got this fellow here <laughs> gigantic werewolf <laughs> what there's no explanation why yeah, yeah. Why? <laughs> Basically, why? And, um, and, but there it is. Yeah, and the, the film is incredibly gory, but it is so in a cartoony sort of way. It's not offensive to any. You know, at the time, of course, there was loads and loads of censorship all over the world in 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 terms of horror and what were called splatter movies. Any any film where people's sort of arms and legs were being locked off, you know, was was having frames of the film locked off as well by by the censors. And, and this movie, really, really, I, if, if anyone said they were offended by this, I, I'd be amazed because it's just a romp. It's arms and legs being chopped off in the way that they were in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's done for fun. It didn't feel to me, it didn't feel like... It didn't feel like its heart was in it when it came to the gore. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. No, in, in the sense of like it wasn't going for that, this is going to really repulse you. And yeah, but I don't think thing. he intended to, as I say. I, no, I don't. I think, yeah. I think his intention was to have a laugh with it, you know, and he does. And, um, and that conveys to the audience. Mm. Well, Turkey Shoot falls a little bit further down for me. I'm not, in, I'm not in the 9 out of 10. I'm more in the 7 out of 10 for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a good romp. I did think that um, the, the two leads for me let it down. Uh, he just wasn't very charismatic as a as a freedom fighter, leader of the rebellion style character. I don't think anyone would would band behind Steve Rails yeah. back in this movie. And I think Olivia Olivia also was a bit more, a bit too much of a wet fish. Yeah, just like grow a backbone uh, sooner than the last five minutes of the movie yeah yeah for, for me you know I'm, I'm 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 enjoying the film so much as i'm watching it that, that i i if there are flaws i try and sort of see the, the good in them and 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 what i did with turkey shoot with those characters they are fairly weak but I, I, I sort of say, well, they're, they're, all, they're almost like real people, you know, that, that's what I'd be like if I was in that prison, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I sort of give them a lot of leeway because I'm enjoying the rest of the film and this mad werewolf thing and all the great weapons and stuff. I'm loving all that so much that I tend to forgive a, a, any, any sort of weak spots or try and excuse them and find a reason why they're there, you know. I, I, I always have a blast with Turkey Shoot. It's a film that I watch quite often. Fair enough. Okay, well, let's move on to our next movie, because it could be argued that Brian Trenchard-Smith, throughout his, his career, has appealed to a, a slightly more juvenile audience yeah, yeah. Uh, who wants action sequences, kick-ass heroes, that kind of thing. He went one further with his next movie after Turkey Shoot. This is the one that people might have heard of. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this was a this was a really big hit in the UK. Yeah, BMX Bandits. BMX Bandits. Yeah, I mean, this this one is again a basic plot for those of you who don't know. It's three Sydney kids getting broiled in a caper over stolen walkie-talkies. A group of armed robbers who imported these walkie-talkies are after them and obviously the only people that can stop them are a bunch of kids on bikes most most notable of course for featuring and starring indeed um a, a young actress just starting out in her career nicole kidman 
That's right, yeah. And and boy, doesn't doesn't the camera love her as well in this? I think you you see her come on, and it, you know it's different. It could be a retrospective thing. It could be that we know her and um and and we're sort of looking out for her and thinking, oh yeah, a chance to see Nicole Kidman in in an early role. But I I think it's more than that. I think I think if you'd seen that film at the time without knowing who she was. I think there's a charisma there and um, a screen present. Uh, she's there with, with all the rest of the kids and she's the one who stands out. She's, she's very tall, of course, as we know. So maybe that little bit of height draws, draws your eyes to her. I think there's a little star in the making there, you know. Yeah, I think the reviews at the time were fairly sort of like, you know, it's not much of a great movie, you know, it's a little, but it features a great performance by Nicole Kidman. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's like you, you do, a lot of the reviews are, but this performance was great. Yeah, and, and I think it might have been a surprise as well that the female, the, the young juvenile female in the film got a lot of the action and a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the camera attention you know normally you'd have these two guys one girl set up and she'd be like the the girlfriend of one of the one of the guys or they'd be fighting over her but she'd be a sort of background figure she'd be one of the gang sort of thing and and one of the guys would be the the lead character and here it it really doesn't play like that no i mean there is there is a moment there is a moment in the movie where she gets kidnapped. Yes, yeah. And you think, okay, this is this is the bit where it's going to be, oh, the damsel in distress. They come in and thing. rescue her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's completely not. She sits there and basically conducts a plan to effect her own escape uh, by spinning this crazy yarn. Obviously, this movie's particularly structured in a way for teenagers, for kids. This is one of the movies that kind of crystallises brian trenchard smith in the sense that it's a commercial movie it's exploitation in the sense of like it exploits the boom of bmx bikes yeah because we we've had we've had like roller disco movies and we've had skateboard movies and this was like the next trend to come along so yeah and think how big bmx bmx's were huge in the early 80s late 70s early 80s the fact that there's not more movies made about this it's astonishing, really. It is. I, I, I wonder if with that, you know, they, they sort of thought, well, there have been all these millions of BMX bikes sold, you know, let's let's tap into that audience and make a movie about it. And then, as you say, it was a hit. But I, I wonder if the industry looked at the, 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 the figures on BMX bandits and thought, well, maybe it's not it's not quite been the mega hit that we wanted. And, and could that be down to the fact that all, all these people on bikes go out on their bikes, they don't go and watch films, you know. It's a bit like the gaming industry now, you know, pe- people may, may wonder, wonder why, um, you know, you can't really make a hit movie out of a computer game, and it's because the, the, the audience you're trying to aim that at isn't interested. I mean, yeah, possibly. I mean, for me, it's, 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 more, um, it's more easily explained by, this is an independent movie. Yeah. It can move quicker than a, a studio picture. Right. So if you're... That's why these a lot of these sort of like mini fads, trends, crazes. It's usually an independent movie that capitalizes on on that audience. Yeah. Because by the time the studios get their finger out and, and make a movie, the, the craze is already yeah. gone. Well, they're they're having they're having twenty meetings about making the film. You know, let's let's do BMX two at Warner Brothers. You know, and and um, after after eighteen months of meetings, the the fads passed. Yeah, yeah. Perfect example of this it is BMX Bandits in nineteen eighty three. Nineteen eighty three released in nineteen eighty four. You had Hal Needham did a BMX movie mm. called Rad. Yeah, which didn't come out until eighty six. 
and that was a studio movie so you, you know it was tri-star pictures so you had that slow process and by the time it came out in 86 absolutely bombed because no one really was was talking about it wasn't the fresh hot thing whereas bts struck while the iron was hot as, as we're calling them made, yeah yeah. Made, yeah well i am now <laughs> <laughs> bts as, as as he as he made the movie released the movie Rates in the profit to the movie. Apparently, this movie, I mean, according to him, on his, on his, there's, there's not really many figures from the UK box office from the early 80s uh, that are published. BTS says that this movie made over a million quid yeah. at the UK box office, which puts it like fairly high up. That puts it alongside. That, that, was, big, like, that was big money at the time. Well, it couldn't the destroyer made 1.2 million at the yeah. UK box yeah. office. But it's like that kind of level of movie for what was shot on probably. Quid, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, the sort of film where you, you would have had to queue up outside the Odeon to get in, you know, you, you couldn't have just walked in and got a ticket. I think it's I think it's a fun film. It definitely feels like um, it's got a feel of a children's film foundation. Yeah, yeah. This is one thing I wanted to talk about, Adam, is that it does have that, but it's then got this other element to it. In terms of the, the, the villains, the bad guys, they're, they're like something out of the Sweeney encroaching on this children <laughs> film foundation world you've, you've got a very interesting actor called brian marshall who he was another one of these guys like we mentioned earlier who'd gone over to australia his, his career in britain seemed to sort of dry up his last film in england was the long good friday which took a while to come out which was indicative of, of what was happening in the industry at the time that was made in 1979 it didn't come out for, for two years hard to believe now it's everyone's you know favorite british gangster movie but uh, but brian was in that but his his career was obviously sort of starting to dry up a little bit around the end of the 70s and so he was one of the guys who came over to australia this was the first movie that he did there um he made a string of uh film all kinds of different films in australia and then got into tv he even appeared in about four episodes of neighbors on british tv over the years in the 60s and 70s brian had played he'd been very good at playing various sort of cops and law enforcement officials but he could also flip and do the sort of cockney gangster the cockney villain and he plays that sort of part here and he's got this gang and in in the opening scene they do this bank heist and they come in, they've all got blue boiler suits on, and they've got these horrible sort of weird pig masks on, and they've got their sawn-off shotguns, and they're, they're, they're blasting into the ceiling and threatening customers and so on, like, like it's an episode of The Sweeney. And, and then we go into these scenes that, as you say, are like something from the Children's Film, film Foundation. So it's a weird mix. And, and the, villains, the villains do get a bit more comical and a bit more cartoony sort of later on in the film. Yeah, they do tend to like go into more Ealing comedy kind of yeah. broad, sort of like they're baddies, but they're stupid. But when the threat comes back occasionally, every now and then you one of them says something and you think, no, he's he's a real hard man. You know, he's a hard man. He, 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 when, when he says he's going to kill Nicole Kidman or he's going to, you know, um, uh, murder the gang or whatever, you, you, you sort of believe it because of that opening scene and because of the way that Brian Marshall's playing. So, yeah, it's this weird hybrid of Children's Film Foundation and the Sweeney. Which is great for me. That sounds great. If that doesn't sell you a ticket, what will, you know? Yeah, I mean, this movie for me, I mean, when, I mean, when this, came, this came out in 84, I was like six or seven, and it became a staple of my viewing habits in, in the 80s. There's some nice stunt work from Nicole Kidman as well. A totally not an 18-year-old bloke in a wig. Okay, so we're moving on to our, our final film in the in this Brian Trenchard-Smith odyssey 
um, Dead End Driving, um, 1986, I guess at the, what we, what we, what were you recalling at the fag end of the exploitation uh, boom? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's 1986 and boy does it show, you know, it's, it's brass, it's day glow, everyone's got sort of tutus, leather jackets, mohawks, eye makeup, face makeup, you know, um, all very garish and, and, and colourful. And, and but again, it's got this dystopian plot. Yeah, so the plot is uh, set in a dystopian future Australia where the youth, the naughty youth, are dealt with by trapping them in a drive in movie theatre, which is effectively a, effectively a concentration camp for teenagers. They're fed a steady diet of junk food, drugs, new wave music, and exploitation films. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> but equally, you know, a gilded cage is still a cage. A couple of interesting things about this movie. Yeah. It's based on a short story by two-time Booker Prize-winning author Peter Carey. So, highbrow writer here. And it's very much um, contemporary. As you say, new wave haircuts, punk haircuts. Seemingly shallow, but I think there's probably a lot of depth there. Yeah, it's got something to say. It's a very political movie when you delve into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting about it for me is that, uh, again, it's like we were just saying about the, the, the stunt thing and the way there was this sort of cult of the stuntman around sort of 1980. This film taps into a, something else that was in the ether, which uh, if you think about Stephen King's The Mist or you think about the two Joe Lansdale the drive-in books, the drive-in and the drive-in too. This this fits right in alongside those in that what you're getting is you're getting a situation where in, in Lansdale's books it's even a drive-in, it's the same as the, the BTS film, you know. But Stephen King's The Mist has its characters shut in the, in a supermarket. And um, and what you've got there is all of these things came out around the same time, all within about four or five years of each other. And you've got this idea that let's our drama is let's trap our characters in a known a known place a known venue a place that's supposed to be happy and entertaining and a leisure space you know and we're, we're going to put the lid on that we're going to keep 30 people in there and then we're going to see what happens to them and treat it as like a microcosm of society a microcosm of the world you know yeah it definitely has mirrors to our single location movie uh, podcast that we did a couple of podcasts ago but it has that eye of trapping them in there creating this microcosm of society within the boundaries of this driving obviously uh, in australia it was mainly, I mean, in this film, it deals with like tensions, racial tensions between the white Caucasian Australians and Asian immigrants coming into Australia and the tensions between that in there. And it, I think he does it really well and really subtly. Yeah, and effectively, I think. There's, there's a great line in it where, where the, the, the lead character that you've been following all the way through kind of accepts her, I guess, accepts her status as being living in this this is where she lives now where she talks about the uh, incoming asian immigrants in, into the drive-in and she says i hope they don't let too many of them in and it's just a little horrible line that just says yeah that's that's what's happened oh yeah that's 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 a that's a point it is it really is, yeah, really yeah. is yeah, uh, the only other thing to mention for me about the film is um, the little snippet that apparently it's Quentin Tarantino, that guy again, it's Tarantino's favourite BTS movie. I think he said, actually, Daryl, I think he said it's his favourite Australian movie. I think he said really? it's his favourite wow. Australian movie, which 
That is a that's a bold claim. I think it's his favourite BTS movie, but I think it's his favourite. To say it's Brian's best film is something, considering the the nines and tens I've been dishing out, you know. But the best Australian movie, that's you know, that's comparing it to Mad Max and and Patrick and all our other favourites, you know. And Picnic at Hanging Rock, Waking Fright, you know. It's like well, well, well. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna check that quote, make sure I'm right here. He does. Deal, he does tend to deal in those sort of like definitive um, statements, doesn't he? QT. Yeah, yeah. And he means them. He means them. Oh no, sorry. No, I, I apologise. His favourite film from the from Brian Trenchard Smith. Yeah, I mean to, to bring stunts back into his is as well. There's there's some amazing car stunts in. There's there's one where a, a Chevy flies about 150 feet through the air driven by not Grant Page this time, but by a stuntman called Grant Norris, who was a veteran of the Mad Max films. And boy, does it show when he flies that car. Looking at BTS's career, this doesn't feel like the the last of a certain type of movie that he was making. Yeah, yeah. And I think after that, he doesn't really kind of... I mean, is there anything after after Dead End Driving that you would single out as... Oh, well, he, he's, he's, he, not, there isn't really. There's, there's, there's one other film I, I do want to mention before we go, but uh, what happens then is he, he goes to Hollywood in, in the 90s, you know, 1990s in America, and he stayed there, and he's made films over there, and I know you've been watching the Leprechaun franchise. Uh, yeah, recently. for my sins. Yeah, and he, he does a couple of those a couple of the sort of mid mid series entries yeah number, to be arguably number three currently i'm on number six and is my next one but he's directed the best one so far number three yeah and it's like number four though he directed number four as well which is god off maybe, maybe did those back to back or something there oh, it, 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 it's kind of weird because it, it says they're both shot on video but number three doesn't look like it's shot on video. And number four looks like it's shot on the worst piece of video they could find. And I think one, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, this, this podcast as a topic was I made the statement as I was watching it, oh, it's Brian Trenchard-Smith. There's always something to enjoy in a Brian Trenchard-Smith movie. And I still stand by the Indeed, statement. there is. Yeah. Even, even in four. The last thing I want to mention is if people want to check out Brian Trenchard-Smith straight away, and if you want to, if you want to go on YouTube or go to your DVD collection or whatever and see a little sample of his work. He won awards and prizes galore in 1978 for making a film called Hospitals Don't Burn Down. And it's 24 minutes long. It's a public information film. Um, it's all about fire safety and it's set in a hospital and it's like a little mini towering inferno. It's great. It's, it's a fantastic little drama made basically to show to to sort of you know for fire chiefs to show to uh, sort of firemen and women about what what to do and not to do if if you go to a burning building you know and brian got the chance to direct it and it's one of his best movies it's 24 minutes long if you've got the blu-ray of dead end driving from arrow it's on there if you don't buy blu-rays it's uh, you can see it in slightly less quality on youtube so check out hospitals don't burn down one of his best well films. i've not watched my extras on my dead end drive in deep blu-ray yet so i will check that out because i've not seen that one before 
great documentary about stuntmen on there oh, as wow. well. Cool. Okay. Well, I might be in the right frame of mind to watch that now after watching Stuntman. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So as I say, looking looking at the rest of his of his career. I mean, we, I, I recently watched the, one of the Panther movies from the mid '80s, which he made just after um, Dead End Driving. Day of the Panther and Strike of the Panther. They shot back to back. Very enjoyable, juvenile action sequences that only seemingly only the '80s could do. Yeah. So should we wrap it up there with um, BTS? I want to actually one 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 final thing I would do want to want to want to plug actually. Uh, not plug, but like just talk about who Brian Trent. He directed a film called Drive Hard about six years ago, and he just seemed to have slowed down in the last six years. But he's been working on trying to get scripts made. He's sold a couple of films, and they've not been made. And he's turned one of them into a novel, which is available to buy on Kindle on on on, on Amazon right now. It's a, it's like a genre mashup where Alice from Alice in Wonderland wakes up in an insane asylum and keeps flashing back to sixteenth uh, century England. Alice through the multiverse, it's called. So yeah, so I want to single out um, a, a, this book that Brian's been uh, recently, uh, just recently published last year, I believe. Oh, Alice through the multiverse. If anyone's got a spare book token knocking around and they're looking for something to spend it on, BTS. It's not that expensive on on Kindle. It's like two pound thirty or something like that. So you, you know, it's not not super expensive, but it has got that genre mashup feel to it. That that you. He's always done so well, going right back to the start. Yeah, exactly. So you can read BTS in prose. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Daryl. We'll we'll hook up and meet again for another podcast fairly soon. Hope everyone's enjoyed today. I just want to thank um, Quad and BFI for supporting these podcasts. So hopefully we'll see you all soon. Yeah, thanks for listening. listening.